there, I'm Karen Sander. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly, a program for the over 50s, those uniquely wonderful baby boomers. My aim is to educate, motivate and inspire you to embrace the exciting journey of life for decades to come. So stay tuned to meet a variety of guests who will share their stories and passions to help us gain insight into the ways to live a happier, healthier life. Welcome everyone today. My guest has come all the way from Melbourne to join me to chat with the Aging Fearlessly listeners. Dr. Susan Hurley has had a long career in the health industry as a pharmacist and medical research scholar, and she's now turned her talent to writing fiction, something many of us dream of doing, but very few actually embark on giving it a go. Her book, Eight Lives, provides a glimpse into medical and pharmaceutical research. And I must say, I was hooked from the first chapter, Susan. It's a brilliant read. Well, thank you, Karen. And it's wonderful to be on your program and to be here on in Sydney on the Northern Beaches. I know. Well, mm. look, we only just met down at Manly Ferry mm. and um, we've had a chat on the way. So, I, you know, I really don't know a lot about you, but I do know that you have put heart and soul into writing a really brilliant novel. It's lovely to hear you say that. And uh, it it was, I guess, a labour of love. It certainly took me a long time. Um, I've always been a writer and a very keen reader. And uh, I've always wanted to write a novel. And now I've done it. And I think the statistics are, of everybody that wants to write a novel, only about 33% ever actually start, or a book of any type. And of those 33% that ever start, very few actually ever finish. I'm sure that's right. (laughs) And then the next step is to get it published once you have finished. Mm. And people have no idea what all of that is about unless they've actually tried. Before you were writing this novel, what was your career looking like? I've had a very varied career, as you said. I, I trained as a pharmacist and I worked as a hospital pharmacist for some years then I got interested in research. I ran a randomised clinical trial of a particular drug that's used for asthma in the hospital where I worked. Um, mm. I thought that that drug wasn't being dosed properly, and I was right about that. Um, but it turned out that the drug was basically too toxic to to use for people with acute asthma. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one outcome of the study, but the personal outcome was that I got hooked on research. So I did a PhD and that was in the subjects of epidemiology, which is a study of disease in populations and health economics. And my specialty became cost effectiveness analysis, which involves for drugs looking at uh, whether they're effective enough to justify their price, essentially. For public health programs, that involves looking if at whether the upfront cost, which is which can be substantial, is justified by the health outcomes and uh, cost savings in terms of healthcare costs avoided from diseases that the people would otherwise have got. Yeah, because people don't realise just how complex this industry is. It do they from research development to even drugs landing on the PBS. 
Uh, a lot of people don't understand anything about drug development and that's was one of the themes that I try to bring out in my novel, which is called Eight Lives. It's a mystery and it's the story of a man's life, but it is set in the drug development world. Yep. So readers learn a little bit or a lot about uh, drug development. It's not in no sense a textbook, it's not non-fiction, but uh, it does have some information in there. Yeah, so it's, it, it is really very educational about human trials and all you know I was just fascinated because you kept turning I kept turning corners all the way through the book going oh my goodness and you know I know a little bit about research and development but I learned so much so it is an education process well that's good to hear yeah Uh, it was actually prompted by a clinical trial that went wrong yes Uh, a real life trip clinical trial. One in the UK that you were talking about. Yes, Uh, it was in London in 2006 and the six men who got the drug that was on test, which was predicted to be a miracle treatment for diseases of the immune system, turned out not to be. They all suffered a severe reaction, the same severe reaction, and they ended up in intensive care on life support. And these people that put their hand up for these research programs to be the human guinea pig, Mm. they don't often realise, do they? Are they aware of what they might be in for or or do they sort of trust? Well, I think they trust. (laughs) There's the principle of informed consent. So all clinical trials have to be approved by an ethics committee these days. And the Ethics Committee will look at the materials that tell the participants what's involved in the trial, what the risks are. But the men who were in this trial, uh, there's been a BBC documentary about it subsequently, Mm. and they've said, look, we really didn't have any idea. And to be fair to them, the the risks are very hard to understand. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's new, isn't it? Yes. I mean, all clinical trials are a test. Yes, And what I try to bring out in Eight Lives is the moral dilemma. So we all want safe and effective medicines. We depend on them, whether the baby boomers are the product of wonderful advances in medicine. Yeah, we are. But for that to happen, those drugs have all had to be tested on animals, had to be tested on humans as well. And those tests involve risks. Somebody... Somebody has to take the risk for us to have those benefits. So and who, should that, who should those people be? Yeah, And yeah. as you said, as baby boomers, we have the advantage of all those medicines over the years that have been tried and, and tested and work. And many of us are living very, very long lives. Like my mum's 92 shortly. And without medication, she wouldn't be here. Mm. And it, it's brilliant in many, many ways. Yes. Well, I hope after reading Eight Lives, um, people are a little bit grateful for to the people who volunteered yeah. for the tests for all those drugs. It so, sounds like it's sort of moralistic. Wouldn't you agree that that message comes across? Yeah, mm. absolutely. Mm. That, yes. And we're going to touch more on that because there's a lot of concepts within your story. You are listening to Radio Northern Beaches 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. In the studio today with me is Dr. Susan Hurley, the author of a fabulous book, 
eight lives. Susan, just before the break, um, we were chatting about one of your characters and his role in the book, um, Golden Boy or David Tran, who is a doctor. Can we talk about the other characters, the other main characters in this story? Yes, certainly. So Miles, Dr Miles Southcott, is uh, one of the five characters who narrates the book. Miles and David were childhood friends and they made a Faustian bargain as teenagers, which plays out during the novel. Miles is a former professional tennis player, a failed former professional tennis player, and now a failing medical doctor. He had a very strong mother, didn't he? He did have a strong mother uh, who meant well, but uh, didn't always... Um, do good. <laughs> yes, uh, she thought she was doing well. Yes, yeah, she was. Do, very, doing, she was well intentioned. Very kind. In, oh, intentioned. Yeah. Yes, yes, that's yes, a good she was word. Well intentioned. So she essentially adopted David, uh, even though he wasn't up for adoption. <laughs> <laughs> she made sure she got him. <laughs> yes, that's right. He was a trophy, a trophy refugee. Yes, um, which is is as sad as it sounds. Mm. Uh, Miles. Um, he's a self-confessed privileged slacker. If you lived in Melbourne, he's somebody who you might see in Collins Street uh, having, <laughs> co- are... <laughs> having coffee with his investment banker mates. Yeah. Um, Miles redeems himself in the book. Yes, I liked Miles. Yes, I like Miles too. I mean, he's, he's a fun sort of guy and he knows his flaws. Yeah. And eventually he starts living his own life rather than the life that his family had in mind for him. So I'm sort of giving away a little bit of the book, but (laughs) the specific, it's it's all in the specifics. It's, yes. Mm. I really did like Miles and I came to like him. I could see the good in him early on, but, you know, I think that, you know, he really warmed on me. You know, good. He was. He's a great character. Mm. I really like him. What about Rosa? I like Rosa too, although she's a little bit harder to like, I think. So Rosa is a an Italian immigrant uh, from Sicily, and she's also come to Australia, like David, the central character of the novel. Uh, she's also come to Australia in unfortunate circumstances. circumstances. She is somebody who really wants to be a scientist. She's a passionate. She's passionate about her uh, chosen profession, which mm-hmm. is to be an immunologist. But she's been a bit sloppy. She's made mistakes. It's the world of science, as portrayed in my book, and I think realistically, can be uh, brutal. Mm-hmm. It, it's hierarch- the hierarchical nature of it is. Uh, portrayed she's made mistakes and her career has been set back so now she's working with uh, David as his research assistant but she's hoping to also redeem herself and to get her career back on track but there are problems uh, with his research program even though he's the golden boy uh, there are issues with his drug and uh, she's in the unfortunate position of having to speak truth to power. Mm. And that doesn't work out well for her. And she's probably had a typical career where things don't always go really, really well, especially in science. Mm. 
Yes, well, I mean, few careers are plain sailing, but uh, in the case of, sci- of medical research, when things don't go well, it's not just the scientists who suffer, and that's, again, something that's depicted in Innate Lives. What about David's girlfriend? Did you like her? Her name's Abigail, by the way, for yes. the listeners. Um, I did, but I don't think I ever really got to know her so well. Mm. So Abigail is, uh, she describes herself as an activist. Uh, she's somebody who's trying to live by her principles. And again, she's finding how hard that is. And she's an elusive sort of character. Um, she and David are an, are an odd couple. And that through the novel we see how difficult it can be for somebody to live through their principles. And one of those principles is really a concept in the book, isn't it, about animal testing? Yes. And her Abigail's father, uh, she's surprised to learn in one scene in the book, uh, has had a valve replacement, a heart valve replacement. And uh, he has chosen to have a porcine, a pig health uh, heart valve, rather than a synthetic one. And so a pig has lost its life for his, for her father to keep living, essentially. And I'd actually forgotten that. There's so many things happen in your book <laughs> that I had just, that had, but yes, as mm. soon as you mentioned it, I went, oh, yes. Mm. No, there's so many, I kind of have to reread it. There's so much going on. It's well, really, yeah, mm. I, it's, um, yeah, there is a lot going on. And so we've talked about Miles, Golden Boy, Abigail and Rosa. Yes, and then there's uh, Lee, also called Natalie. Natalie. So um, one of the uh, aspects of the book is that the Vietnamese characters have um, anglicised names. names. Uh, so Miles's mother, who, as we said, meant, means well, gave his... David's original name was Jung, spelled D-U-N-G, uh, but Miles's mother decides he would integrate into Australian society better with an, e- an English, an Australian name. So she names him David, and David decides that uh, he will do the same for his sister. So her name's Lee, and he renames her Natalie. There's some, I don't want to give it away, but there's some funny conversations about speaking in Vietnamese and using their their Vietnamese names. And uh, I, I like it because when in real life that plays out a lot when you go into some places where there's Vietnamese proprietors of business. Yes. It, it, you know, <laughs> I, could just, I was chuckling because in my, you know how when you're reading a novel, uh, sometimes it... You get into a scene in your own life, mm-hmm. or you put yourself. Do you ever do that? Do you put yourself in a place? I, uh, I sort of sometimes put myself in a place, and I'm imagining I've got this visual of where I am. Well, I, I think when I'm right, when I was writing Eight Lives, I was trying to put myself into the scenes to think how would I feel if I were this character or that character, or if I were an observer. Yeah. So. I'm pleased that you had that 
same feeling? Well, <laughs> I, I knew which where I was when mm-hmm. I, whenever Natalie and her colleagues. I knew where I was sitting yes. in that in that part of the story. Well, she Natalie has a nail salon, yep. uh, which she um, David, her brother, has helped her finance, um, and she is really hard as nails. Yeah. Natalie, and uh, it was wonderful doing the research for that character, spending some time with uh, a young Vietnamese woman running a nail salon nearby. And she, I have to say, she loved helping me with the research and oh, was... giving me the swear words to um, oh, I... encompass her feelings about particular scenarios that I oh, would I describe it, to her. It was really great. Dr. Susan Hurley, the author of Eight Lives, is in the studio with me today, and we're discussing. This amazing book that she's written, she's gone from a technical writer, as in medical, pharmaceutical, to writing an actual fiction. And it is a brilliant fiction story. And we're just, we've just been discussing the characters. Susan, the main characters, David, Rosa, Abigail, Natalie and Miles. Yes. And they are all just wonderful characters. And to tell you the truth, I did listen to it as an audio book and the audio book is really it's so it's so good to have those characters' voices playing in your head. Mm. It's I was really pleased that they cast a young Vietnamese woman as um Lee, Natalie yeah. for that and she does a fantastic job. Maria Tran is her name. Well, she did do a fantastic job mm. and um I liked the way that in the audio book it would say Miles and then it would go into Miles mm. speaking, his, you know, narrating his part of the story mm. and it was really, really great. Abigail was uh, terrific too, I think. She really um, came across as a very melancholy yes, because of what had happened to her partner but also very thoughtful um, but, as you said, cool. Very, very cool. Mm. You, you didn't, you know, when you can really embrace someone, she she had that air about her, but that you couldn't embrace. Her. Yeah, that you yes. wanted. The, you, that's what you wanted. Mm. The, so um, the hierarchical structures, jealousy, racism, and the central character of David Tran, life and death. What else affected his fate? Money, and that is a big. Part of what affected his fate and a theme in the book. So um, he has investors uh, in the development of his drug and they are poised to make, well, to increase their fortunes. Yes. And he's poised to become famous on a world stage as well as the Australian stage and to become um, much more well-off than he'd ever hoped Uh, and it doesn't happen Um, and the other character who narrates the book comes from the business side Uh, yes his his name is harry renard yes and he's referred to by his friends and foes as foxy yes he's uh, he describes himself as a fixer so he's a fixer for the moneyed elite Uh, he um, steps in when their businesses or their children go bad, which um, happens a lot in those you know, in, the, in real life. Well, it happens in everybody's life, yes. but uh, he, uh, he 
but they have people like Foxy. Yes. Uh, and uh, so he um, he buries the bodies, he says, and he washes away the inconvenient facts. And when uh, David dies, uh, Foxy is called upon by the uh, investors to, well, the chief investor, yes. to do that. And uh, so... I find him quite amusing, actually, Foxy. Long uh, lunches. Exactly, long boozy. lunches. He's somebody who you might have seen on the stand at the Banking Royal Commission and he wouldn't have been apologising. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, he's an interesting character, but look, he loves his wife and his daughter. Yes. And they're his redeeming um, characteristics. And... Uh, it's it's interesting the way things play out for with him and Miles. So Miles, he, he regards Miles as a protege, and uh, that plays out in a way that Foxy doesn't anticipate. Yes, definitely. Mm. And but, uh, I was just going to say that uh, the reason that money is so important in this story is that the drugs that are the subject of the novel, uh, a class of drugs called monoclonal antibodies or mm-hmm. MABs. That's a real class of drugs. Yes. And they've been fabulously successful. Yes. Deservedly so. They really uh, have made a wonderful contribution to the management of many diseases from cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, um, melanoma, mm-hmm. macular degeneration of the eyes. And uh, they're big money spinners. Worldwide, uh, the sales of, mo- of all monoclonal antibodies are $100 billion per year. It's huge, isn't yeah, it? It is huge. So in, um, in the trial that I mentioned that was, gave me the seed of the idea for eight lives, that drug was a monoclonal antibody. And the trial that happened uh, was a first in human or a phase one trial so typically if you have a monoclonal antibody that goes into before it goes into the trial it might be worth 20 million dollars if you were to try to sell it if you were a small company you tried to sell it to a big company Uh, if you have a successful phase one its value has doubled yeah so it's now worth 40 million and you would we would have spent maybe $500,000 on the trial, if that. Yep. So a lot hinges on that first trial. I mean, the subsequent trials add a lot more value, but the first trial is really important because no matter how comprehensive the testing on animals has been, no matter how successful that testing's been in terms of giving you an idea that the drug may work, when they can't predict those tests can't predict how the drug will work and what, in humans. And what the human body does. I mean, it's a wonderful machine. Yes. And it reacts. That's right. And it, and it broke down in that, the case of the men in uh, London. But, you know, that's just the reality of life, that animals and humans are different and uh, in, in wonderful ways, but in ways that... Um, yeah. That don't work for drug testing. And you can see in your book just the greed behind getting these phase one trials through and the speed and yes. cost cutting. Yes, that's it's right. Like there's, yeah. there's just so much about cost cutting at the expense of 
lives. Mm. Well, one of the things that happened in the London trial uh, and that is is also portrayed in Eight Lives is that the drug was tested on all the men at once, essentially at once. Yes. So there was a 10-minute gap between the first and the second and subsequent men. So by the time the last man got his dose, the first man was already ill. So they all suffered this terrible reaction. Now, that shouldn't happen these days. There have been changes to the way clinical trials have are done as it a consequence makes sense, of that. It though, doesn't it? it does. To just like, let's see what happens to the first person before we inject yeah, the second. That's right. Yes. That's, that's almost like common sense. It is common sense, yes. And you just have to wonder what those guys were thinking uh, in that trial. Money. Mm. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm sure I'm rubbing my two fingers together going, money, you know. Well, look, who knows? It's never been uh, stated why that happened. Uh, it, the... the but in the novel, it's portrayed as uh, that, that sort of money. thing is portrayed as uh, being affected you've by really, money. You've really woven that in so well. I loved it. Mm, it good. Yeah. Mm. And uh, it, Gina, and is it Gina that was pushing? Gigi. Gigi, sorry. Yeah. Gina. <laughs> Gigi. Close. <laughs> I was close. Um, you know, that was in charge of that side of it as well. Yes. And yeah, it's, it's, there was a lot of buck passing and. Yeah. Exactly. So I should also mention that the, the trial in London had been approved by all the regulatory bodies. It had been approved by an ethics committee, had been approved by the UK reg- drug regulator. So I don't know why uh, that mistake was allowed. I mean, it was essentially a mistake to, to give them the drug Ten minutes, just ten minutes apart, which how, is essentially at the same time. How did you fall upon this trial? What you know, what, I know you've used, you've now written a novel based around that. In how where did where did you hear about it? Uh, I read about it in the scientific literature. Yeah, and a couple of years after it had happened, actually, and there were a lot of articles published in the science in the scientific literature about it, maybe 150, with people working out, trying to work out um, how scientists can avoid that happening again. So can you test in the laboratory, in a test tube or in a culture plate for that particular effect, which is known as a cytokine storm? The mm. men had what was, was essentially an immune system meltdown, and it's called a cytokine storm. How can, how can you test for that in the laboratory? That was one of the focuses. And it turns out that you can. And one of your characters goes on to look at that. That's right. So yeah. that was... Uh, it all uh, helped m- me spin a story. And uh, it's not a fictionalised account of the trial in any sense way. because I just don't know what happened. Yeah. And I don't know of anybody who does know. This is the Ageing Fearlessly program and in the studio with me is Dr Susan Hurley, author of Eight Lives. Susan has transitioned from a world of pharmaceutical, medical research and writing technical papers and now become a novelist. Susan, lifelong learning, my opinions on lifelong learning, I love it. What do you think about lifelong learning? Well, I love it too, and I'm 
really glad that I gave myself the challenge of writing a novel and that I've been successful in finishing it and uh, getting it published. It's been published by Affirm Press, uh, who were the small publisher of the year last year. Um, it was My novel was shortlisted for a prize in the UK uh, before it was published. That's a great feat. It was a thrill. Yes. And it's been reviewed in pretty much all the print media. Fantastic. And that's it's delightful to see that happen. And Do you pinch yourself? <laughs> <laughs> what I really like is when readers come up to me and talk about how much they've enjoyed it and talk about the characters. For example, somebody said to me, well, do you think Rosa lives with her aunt and uncle? Do you think her aunt and uncle, uh, did she have brothers or sisters? Um, you know, that they really get invested in the characters and the story and ask me, well, what, what do you think happens to Rosa? She goes to Switzerland at the end of the, yes. uh, at the, end of the book. And what happens to her? And so I love that. Yeah. Uh, that's something that I guess I didn't anticipate would, would be so enjoyable, but it has been. Yeah, well, mm. it's um, a real tribute to the work that you've created because it's had people thinking and living in the story for a moment, hasn't mm. it? It's like mm. they're really engaged with that story. You had to step out of your comfort zone to do this? Absolutely. Um, we talked before about um, having to create a voice. I also had to learn how to construct a story. So in scientific writing, uh, what one does is put all the information that's um, the same together. So you write the methods in a paper, which is basically saying how you do the experiments. The results go in the results section. Uh, you start off with the introduction where you're saying, or well, why are you doing this? And you end up with a discussion saying what your results mean and how they compare with what everybody else has done. Mm -hmm. So it's all very um, codified yep. and it's lumping all the material that's homogeneous together. Uh, you don't do that in a novel. There's a drip feed of information and I had to learn how to do that. I did go to some classes and I read some how-to books. They helped but and I also did some workshopping with other writers who've become friends. And so that was fun. You've got a new community. Exactly. Uh, but what also really helped was analysing books that I liked and admired as a writer, not just as a reader. So, mm. well, I mentioned two. One is by Jodie Pico. Yes. Who's a writer I really admire. And her book, My Sister's Keeper, is told in multiple voices, like I've like Eight Lives, my book, mm -hmm. and also she is examining how a family's decision to um, have a baby, essentially a designer baby, to mm. provide bone marrow for their um, daughter who has leukemia, yeah. and so you learn a little bit about the, that process, but what you also learn about is how that decision um, affects the family 
And that's the sort of thing that I was trying to do in Eight Lives. Yes. So we've, we're in the drug development world as consumers of drugs. We yes. know how that turns out. Yes. Well, <laughs> but it doesn't – here I'm explaining how it evolves for the junior scientists, the senior scientists, the investors, the families are surrounding those people. So that's what I, I again, a print of an example. So I really analysed that book to see how she did it and also a book by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the, A Chronicle of a Death Foretold, oh. which is a wonderful little book. Um, there's a lot of foreshadowing in that book. So for, to construct the story, um, as, as you know, the Eight Lives starts with the fact that David Tran is dead. Yes. So then I had to weave in his past, the, the, the essentially the present when he dies, and what happens beyond yep. that. And uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's book was a wonderful example of how that can be done. I read in some notes Chernobyl. Did you draw I, some experience from Chernobyl? Well, Chernobyl has come out since my... Uh, Ch- the Chernobyl, the... Uh, uh, HBO TV series. Yes, that has come out since um, my book's been published. Yes, uh, I think that that's a fantastic example of storytelling that educates for education. Yes, yes, and that's something that we we talked about. Yes, uh, that again I was trying to achieve with Eight Lives, so people learn a little bit about drug development. Yeah, uh, and with Chernobyl, you learn a lot about what happened and. Without getting into the minutiae of it, but you learn that uh, basically the authorities knew that that power plant was fragile. Yep. And then they tried to cover it up. Yes, yes. <laughs> and there are attempted cover-ups in my novel Eight Lives as well. Did you learn much about yourself while you were writing? Um. It's a, that's a very tricky question. <laughs> I know when I was writing, I learnt that I actually had the grit to sit down and do it, mm. and that, um, and that I was capable of, you know, putting my thoughts onto paper, which I mm. never really thought that I could do. Yeah, it was just mm. a question because the things that I certainly learnt about myself when I was writing. Not that I wrote a novel. <laughs> yes. Well, I guess I learnt, I also learnt that it's possible to do that, to spend a lot of time in a room alone <laughs> writing a novel. Now, I've spent a lot of time writing. I've done a lot of consulting pro, uh, projects where I'm basically doing what the client wants on my own. But... Um, it, it, I hadn't worked in such an isolated way before. As a creative as well. Yes. Uh, and so I guess I learned that I can do it. Yeah. And it's, um, it's a wonderful experience once you actually get the job done mm. and get that book with a cover. <laughs> do, do, do you remember that feeling? Yes, I when do you remember that, that book? feeling. It's like giving birth. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I think there was more... It was harder to write the book than give birth, I have to say. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, the other challenge is 
that I also found that I was um, capable of rising to but but wasn't sure along the way is that um, I moved from a position where in my professional life I was uh, accomplished and recognised as such to st- basically start again. It is so. a big start all over again, yes, isn't it? It's, it is. It's like, well, I'm just going to reinvent myself. Yes, as it, a novelist. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing too serious. <laughs> Let's just go out and write a book. Um, well, it's easier to say and than do. Yes. Write a novel. And that's what so many people, I'm going to write a book one day. It's so easy to say, mm. but few do it. You are listening to Radio Northern Beaches 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. My guest is Dr Susan Hurley and, you know, what a great selection. Thank you, Karen. It really goes with the story that Mm. we've been telling about your book, Eight Lives. And I'd like to say again, we've got to get going, but um, where can people buy your, your brilliant book? They can buy it at all good bookstores. Uh, they can buy it online from places like uh, Booktopia or Amazon. Uh, and download they can, it? They can download the audio book from Audible and other audio platforms. And it's available as an ebook too on oh. Kindle. Well, I listened to it. I bought the book and then I was time poor. And I knew I was going to be doing a lot of driving, mm-hmm. so I downloaded on Audible. And Good. I love the characters, as Terrific. you were saying, yeah. the, the young woman that yeah. the Viet plays Natalie. Um, it was the so Vietnamese well done. Australian woman Maria Tran. Yeah. yeah, she's really good. Yeah, I love audio books myself, so I'm really pleased that you like it. Oh, I did. I, yeah. I did, and I. I finished it today. <laughs> I well done. You, I told you I was cleaning at home and I, I was carrying around my little speaker from room to room listening to the last you know, mm. few chapters and I, I truly loved it. So thanks for coming up. All the way from Melbourne, I'm going to say. Mm. It's really been my pleasure. Thanks so much, Karen. So um, listeners, um, looking forward to my next interview. Uh, and chatting to you again but thank you so much Dr Susan Hurley author of Eight Lives if you ever want to come back and visit you're well and truly welcomed (laughs) thanks so much so this is it for today's program it's time to say cheerio to the wonderful Northern Beaches community join me next week for another episode of Aging Fearlessly And now for a song written by Nick Howard, especially for the listeners. This is Karen Sander. Have a fantastic week. And remember, ageing is inevitable and growing old is a choice. The sun is shining bright outside. There's a sparkle in your eye. It's not all nine to five. It's a wonderful life Let's go and climb mountains high Swim across oceans wide Live out our dreams, just you and me Let your heart be alive There's no time to
Let your heart be alive. 